Welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Report, modern insights from biopharma and medtech leaders. On this podcast, you'll hear from our experts in life science development, commercialization, and investment banking. Along with experts from our network of biotech and medtech executives, physicians, bankers, and strategists who excel at guiding global life science companies and their investors through complex decisions. Join our conversation at the intersection of science and business. Here are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a new podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Peter Bach, and I'm a managing director with Back Bay here in Boston. We've launched this podcast so that we can share brief but important updates with all of you from our thought pieces, experience from advising clients on development, clinical, and transactional strategies, as well as conversations with guests from our network along the way. Thank you for being here with us today. My guests this afternoon are Kyle O'Neill and Brendan Wang. Kyle's a consultant here at Back Bay, and Brendan is one of our engagement managers. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the topic of gene therapies, in particular some of the insights from a piece Kyle and Brendan authored in the industry newsletter, Cell and Gene, and recently released as a white paper on BBLSA.com. Kyle and Brendan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for the introduction, Pete. Really excited to be here on our inaugural podcast. Yeah, likewise. Excellent. So your piece covered a, a broad array of topics uh, that really spanned, you know, the history of gene therapy, some of the scientific challenges the field has faced, and some of the emerging themes in commercial models that some of the developers are trying to establish. So this article has already generated a bunch of interest already. What surprised you the most in developing it? From my perspective, I think the most surprising part was where there hasn't been as much interest compared to where we have seen a lot of interest from our work in the space. You know, from a technical perspective, there's been a lot of focus on viral vectors, and we've worked with a variety of clients in the space on both the first generation, second generation, and sort of third generation approaches that are coming out of those. But beyond viral vectors, there isn't a ton of excitement around disease biology or even modulating transgene expression compared to all the interest in viral vectors. And from a commercial perspective, it's really interesting to think about all the investment in gene therapy in the background of some really tricky questions about the gene therapy business model. Great. I think that's a good jumping off point, Kyle, to maybe starting with with where, where the piece uh, started, and, and that's the question of delivery in, in vector biology. And obviously, for a gene therapy to do its work, you have to get the transgene that you're trying to deliver into the cell. You have to get it to the right organ, and it has to get into the cell. And then the gene that's the payload has to be uh, expressed. So maybe you could talk a, a little bit about you know, how the field is trying to tackle that issue and, and where it started and, and where you think it's going. Well, where it started goes back a long way to adenoviral vectors. And really, the challenge people saw with those was you were setting off an immune response in the body, and that caused potentially safety issues. I think since there's been a bit more focus on 
adeno-associated viruses, which are sort of a safer version of adenoviruses. And similarly, if you think about the other type of viral vector or lentiviral vectors, you know, sort of where we started was with these first generation integrating lentiviral vectors um, that were potentially toxic and pathogenic. Um, we've moved towards self-inactivating lentiviral vectors that have a bit of an improved safety profile. So that's where the field is now. But even if you think beyond those two innovations of self-inactivating lentiviral vectors and sort of the next-gen capsids on adeno-associated viruses, people are trying to really engineer something that is like a novel adeno-associated virus or a in vivo lentiviral vector that's sort of the third wave of these viral vector technologies. And Pat, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, the adenoviruses, there, or as people call them, AAVs. And I, I think that's where a lot of the interest has recently been in the field and trying to solve the question of, of tissue tropism and, and getting the gene to the right tissue. Um, you know, and a lot of the initial forays into the industry, uh, from the industry has been, you know, uh, diseases of you know, the liver or of the hematopoietic, uh, system or in the eye. And those are all areas where you can, you know, easily deliver or the viral vector, you know, gets to the disease tissue quite e easily. So what are people doing and where in the f where is the field going in regards to AAV? In regards to AAV, you have a lot of people looking at the low-hanging fruit, as you mentioned. Getting to the liver is perhaps the easiest place in the body to access with a gene therapy or AAV, uh, whereas something like getting to the muscle or heart tissue is much more challenging. And you see people trying to engineer these next-gen AAVs that might get to the muscle a bit better. So you could deliver a potentially lower dose that has more benefit and potentially less side effects. I think if you think about an interesting analog outside of the AAV space, you see a lot of people in neuromuscular diseases researching antibody oligonucleotide conjugates right now to try and get something into the muscle, which is traditionally a hard tissue to reach. And I, I think that's a good transition to maybe talk about, you know, moving from vector design and, and payload delivery to, you know, some of the issues in and around clinical development in this space and either choosing the right patients or, you know, optimizing the clinical development parameters to be able to, you know, show an effect with whatever drug you're studying. What did you find in that space? I think the regulatory question is pretty large. You have companies that are developing gene therapies, in particular in the hemophilia space, as where I'm thinking at the moment, and you have fairly efficacious therapies from a biomarker perspective, improving the levels of whatever gene or protein you're trying to express. But translating that biomarker improvement to some type of clinical benefit is a real big question for the FDA. And especially in areas where there are therapies, even if perhaps not so effective like hemophilia, there's a fairly high bar to improve on some sort of 
clinically efficacious therapy, especially with a one and done treatment that you aren't going to redose over time. Yeah. And I think that issue also speaks to some of the uh, uh, questions in and around the, the commercial challenges within the space of having a, a drug that instead of being used chronically is essentially a, a one dose drug. And at the end of the day, that has big implications from a, uh, a commercial model. So maybe you can you know, transition now and let's, let's t- spend some time talking about some of the, the commercial challenges in the space. Obviously, we're still in early days uh, for the field of, of gene therapy, but you know, there are some initial uh, drugs out there that have, have approved. How do you see the space evolving from the commercial standpoint? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating space because I, I think gene therapy has been talked about uh, for many years, and it's only in the most recent few where we've begun to see some initial um, products make it to market, and then some of those ideas about how we pay for those products, um, you know, among the uh, you know various different payers and, and experimenting with new payment models and that sort of thing. So I, I, I think the, the, what I would say is with the initial couple of years of experience under our belts, you know, we see, and I think the, the, I don't want to say simplest because none of this is simple, but the most straightforward type of, of payment methodology is, is some sort of outcomes based contract. Right. And, and there the notion being that, okay, so you have a product that you think can cure this disease or can have some lasting efficacy. Well, instead of us paying all up front for it, maybe we do front all of the money now. And then as you meet certain clinical um, thresholds, so durable efficacy at 30 days or three months, six months, a year, then, you know, if your product stops working at one of those points, then you know there's some sort of rebate that goes back to the the payer and and so i think those are the most straightforward in that conceptually it it makes a lot of sense right you should only pay for a gene therapy the full price if it actually does what it's supposed to do um another i would say written about but i haven't seen as as often um in practice or maybe at all is a is more of a mortgage based model where you're spreading fixed payments over a number of months or years rather than paying a large bolus up front and i think that's a really interesting payment model um it it spreads you know it spreads costs over a, a more tenable time frame rather than having to to, to dish out um you know, multiple millions uh, all up front for a therapy. Um, and then you're at risk, of course, of, of patients moving to another plan and, and maybe you don't reap all of the, um, the, the savings associated with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that one is still relatively untested. And, and so, yeah, we're seeing a bunch of different sort of payment models emerge and it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple In of many- years. People, when they think about gene therapies, they're sort of their 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 thinking or heads immediately go to the fact that this could be a curative treatment. And in in many respects, you know, few of these 
therapies have shown that, you know, to date or may show that, you know, in the long term. So you know, maybe you could sort of comment both from a commercial positioning competitive standpoint, certainly from the the pricing standpoint, sort of the the implications to the fact that this may not be a one and done, you know, single solution to a, a disease where the patients are probably at least for the diseases where uh, sponsors have have initially gone with gene therapies, there's you know significant polypharmacy, uh, you know, and substantial comorbidities. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you you both know as as we do a, a number of KOL interviews, and and of course our our project work mirrors. Um, industry trends. So gene therapy is hot. So we've been doing a lot of that. So you speak to KOLs um, more recently about, you know, their thoughts on gene therapy. And I, I think it's a really interesting point um, that one and done is not quite what we thought it was. Um, it's, you know, one and, and maybe you can avoid a therapy for three to five years. Um, and I would even say that's you know, five years is, is, is what I've heard most recently is, you know, if a gene therapy could offer five years of durable response, that would be clinically meaningful, which is a far cry um, from, oh, you get one injection and you're good for the rest of your life, right? Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, from the payer perspective, certainly it's a question of, okay, it, obviously we need to find that or, or manufacturers have to find that balance of running a clinical trial where you can see some sort of effect and get a product approved versus running a trial for, you know, five years or eight years or 10 years uh, and hoping that, you know, at the end of it, you have a viable product, right? And so I, I guess the point I'm, I'm trying to get at is, is that payers are getting less data. You, you get much, you get, significantly less data than you would want to make a decision about, yes, we will pay for a long period of time of, of efficacy. So I think, you know, these sort of risk sharing agreements and uh, just different ways of, you know, historically we've been a, a it's been a, a volume based um, uh, pricing model. So, you know, you take three pills, you pay three times the cost of, of one pill. Now I think it's, definitely shifting towards, you know, how much effect are you getting over what period of time? Um, and what will be really interesting to see will be how people handle, how payers handle uh, patients moving from one plan to another uh, over time. Because, you know, you go to payer A, they pay for, you know, 100% of a gene therapy that's administered to that patient. That patient stays there for two years and then they change jobs and now they're covered by payer B. Now payer A is still tracking the outcomes for that patient that's no longer on their plan. And then the rebate needs to go back to payer A or do they transfer um, that information to payer B? And we, we all know how data transfer <laughs> in this day and age is, is uh still, you know, pen and paper. So, I, I, I mean, there's got to be a lot of, um, you know, health IT and, and healthcare system 
upgrades and, and changes in innovation that'll be needed to make this run smoothly. I think that that last piece is is sort of fascinating where, you know, to your analogy, sort of payer A has all the downside. And especially if you're thinking about the situation where it's, it's a child, right? Because then the situation gets even more difficult where it's, you know, the parent's plan playing for the child, you know, and all the benefits are seen by, you know, who knows how many jobs the average person is going to have in their lifetime, but three or four different payers 30 years down the road are actually the ones, um, you know, reaping the economic benefit that somebody, you know, essentially foot uh, 20, 30 years beforehand. So. And this is a pretty uniquely U.S. Mm -hmm. healthcare system phenomenon too. I mean, right, because because we have such a fragmented payer system. And so, um, yeah, if you have a single payer system, you don't need to worry about that data transfer or thinking about you know, patients moving off of plans, uh, oversimplifying, of course, considerably. But uh, it, it is definitely a conundrum that um, of the developed nations, the U.S. is, uh, you know, it, it is fairly complicated. Um, and so the, the other uh, interesting point to make is we've, so we've, we've been talking about uh, outcomes-based contracts. We've talked about mortgage-based models. Um, I guess both of those, I mean, from our research, both of those are being implemented for Zolgensma, so the, 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 genes, the gene therapy for SMA. Um, and yet, based on some equity research that we had seen, um, most payers are not opting for that and are just opting for a straight pay and we're done. And I think it's interesting because it speaks to a bit of the complexities that we've been alluding to here, which is that it is just really complicated to follow up with these patients long-term and to really make sure that the contract is enforced yeah. on both sides. Yeah. And I wonder if it's also a situation where for a rare disease like SMA in the specific instance you just referenced, if, you know, on any one particular plan in the United States, a payer may have one or two patients. So does getting into all of these, you know, contracting and long-term benefits tracking make sense to a payer versus just cutting a check for you know, seven figures uh, and calling it a day? So, but a, a whole different topic for another day. Maybe transitioning a, a, a little bit from the you know future of the commercial landscape, Kyle, sort of where based on what you're seeing in the, in the pipeline and either from a technical perspective or different diseases people are trying to address with gene therapy, where you think the field is going? I think really the scientific opportunity, and maybe you might even call this the white space in company formation right now is all downstream of the AAV vectors we talked about earlier. You think about sort of the vector life cycle and getting vectors to express the gene payload at a higher rate. And that's really where a lot of the exciting science is, in my opinion. You know, there's interest in using optogenetics to potentially modify how gene therapies are expressing their payload. You've got companies working on novel gene sequences. And perhaps I'll 
end with this quote from one of the leaders in AAV development uh, recently on a new company that was formed saying, you know, what's between what's in the capsid and the genome itself and how you express it and how you turn it up and down is an area that people are paying a lot more attention to right now. And that quote was from Jim Wilson at the University of Pennsylvania, who's been involved in a number of different gene therapy spinouts over the years. And it just speaks to where everyone's mind is at the moment. Well, as a proud Quaker, we could not get through a gene therapy conversation without Kyle O'Neill bringing up the august academic institution from which he graduated a few years ago, the University of Pennsylvania. So I don't know a more appropriate way to end our episode with Kyle as a guest than on that quote. And I'll also thank Brendan as well. If you'd like to learn more about the work we do at Back Bay Life Science Advisors or read our latest white paper on gene therapy authored by Brendan and Kyle, you can visit our website at www.bblsa.com. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Back Bay Life Science Report, brought to you by the Back Bay Life Science Advisors Strategy and Investment Banking Teams. To learn more, please visit us at bblsa.com and connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. For show notes or links to items mentioned in the show, visit the podcast page on our website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening source. 